Dear Heavenly Father, we give thanks that we can look into your word today. We give thanks that you have given us your word freely. We give thanks that we are in a country and a place where we can come freely to this place and we can worship you. Father, as we look into your word now and as we hear your word um, read and preached on, we ask that you'll soften our hearts, that your spirit will lead us, your spirit will guide us, your spirit will teach us. In your name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Naomi's going to bring out the Bible reading to us now, and then Duncan will bring us the word. Today's reading begins at Acts 4, verses 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy people among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now a man named Ananias together with his wife, Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit? and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died, and great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, Tell me, Is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, this is the price. Peter said to her, How could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. And at that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. 
Then the young men came in and, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. This is the word of the Lord. Wow, what a reading. Some shocking things in there, shocking generosity, shocking judgments. I was thinking as we were reading that, probably the generosity is more shocking, actually. Um, but what a ride has been in Acts, right? What a, what a, it's been an incredible journey we've had so far, travelling through Acts. There's been an amazing transformation happen. Uh, if you're just joining us today, uh, there's been so much happening in those, these first few chapters of Acts before where we are today. Thousands of people have repented of their sin, turned away from their sin, and turned to Jesus in faith. Um, Individuals like Peter have gone from just a few weeks earlier, remember we saw this the other week, a few weeks before this he was terrified, uh, denying Jesus, um, and now he's gone from that to being a bold proclaimer of Jesus. And the question I want to sort of open with is, what brought about that dramatic change? In them, what brought about this change, this incredible change? It's a really important question, one that many people wrestle with. Uh, lots of pastoral issues that um, I chat to people about. Many people are struggling actually with this question: how How can I change? Where is God's power to bring about the kind of transformation that we see in Acts? Well, we've already seen the answer to that. As we've been reading, we've already seen that sort of begin to be answered. Uh, the risen Lord Jesus, you remember this, poured out his Holy Spirit uh, onto his people and he commissioned his apostles uh, to be his witnesses, to teach people about him. So there's this pattern that's already been set up. Jesus transforms his people by his Spirit through his word. He transforms his people by his powerful, wonderful, indwelling spirit through his words that he has given. What we're going to see in this part of Acts, though, as we're looking, that we're looking at, is, is this same reality, but from a slightly different angle. Uh, just look down at chapter 4, verse 33. Uh, so the section that we start with, it's kind of a little pause. You get these pauses through Acts where you sort of take a breath and there's these summary of what's going on. That's one of these. Um, it's, a, it's, in, uh, it's, it's like the one at the end of chapter 2 that we looked at a few weeks ago, and it just paints this stunning picture. I mean, I hope as you read through, and maybe in home groups, you've just been really kind of lifted in your spirits by this picture. 
It's a beautiful picture of a transformed community. But what brought it out? What brought this about? What was the kind of energizing power behind all of this? Well, verse 33. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. We'll come back to that in a moment. We keep reading. And the strict rules they laid down were so powerfully at work among them all. No, not in your version. No. Um, And their impressive self-will and discipline was so powerfully at work among them all. Their 12 principles for victorious living were so powerfully at work among them all. No. See what it says? And God's grace was so powerfully at work among them all. There is something very important here that we're being shown about how God brings about change in his people. This is important for us who are Christians, no matter how long you've been a Christian. It's helpful for those of us who aren't Christians but are kind of considering Jesus and his claims. God saves his people by his grace, by his undeserved kindness. We're saved through faith alone, through just hearing the word about Jesus and holding out our empty hands, not bringing them full of our own righteousness, just holding out empty hands to receive his forgiveness and his spirit and to trust him as Lord. We're saved by grace through faith alone. But sometimes we can find ourselves thinking that that's kind of true for becoming a Christian. But then we we really need to move on from that. Uh, We're saved by grace, sure, but then we kind of just, we need to pull up our bootstraps and continue by our own effort and in our own strength. You ever find yourself kind of, catch yourself thinking that way? Well, the Bible consistently speaks against that way of thinking. That's why there's this really interesting pattern in in almost all of the uh, the New Testament letters It's this strong pattern where before we're told to do anything, before we're told to do anything, we're reminded powerfully about what God has done in Jesus. It's done before do. The Christian life does involve efforts. It involves repentance and discipline and perseverance. But that effort is always a secondary thing. Uh, It always flows out of this more fundamental reality of the grace of God, the grace of God. God saves us by his grace. He changes us by his grace. He keeps us by his grace. And one day he will renew this world in life and peace, all to the praise of his glorious grace. And I just want to pause at that point and and ask you, don't you long for this? Don't you long for this? For God's grace to be powerfully at work in you, in you, to free you from what holds you back, to fill your heart so so much with Jesus that you stop anxiously looking for other things or other people, things that don't satisfy you but just leave you more empty. Don't you long for a more and more grace-soaked grace-transformed life. Well, let's have a bit of a closer look at how 
this grace of God was powerfully at work in this early church um, in Acts 4. So let's head back to verse 32. Um, This whole kind of pause, this section, this summary section starts with here, verse 32, all the believers were one in in heart and mind. There was this deep unity among these believers. They had been united to Jesus by faith, and that meant they were also united to each other. Um, they were united in heart. They loved each other. And they, that, that unity in heart showed itself in practical ways. It showed itself in radical ways. So you see that as you keep reading. Um, in that same verse, no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own. But they shared everything that they had. Or down in verse 34, there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, uh, brought the money uh, from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Wow. What remarkable... Like, see what I said at the start. I think that's kind of actually the, the most shocking thing in this passage. What, now, what is going on here? Uh, some people have read this and th- sort of thought it's an early form of communism, of kind of no private ownership, everything owned by the collective... It becomes clear, though, as you keep reading, that that's not the case. Uh, Private ownership continued, and we actually see that in the next chapter with Ananias, how Peter talks to Ananias. Um, What's in view here isn't some kind of top-down enforced sharing. It's something so much better than that, way better than that. This is grace-driven, spirit-inspired, Christ-exalting, joyful generosity. (laughs) Generosity. This is just what happens when people are gripped by the enormity of God's grace. God's grace fills us up. And when you're full, you don't need to sort of relate to the world around you out of neediness or selfishness. It's a bit like, you know how it's the worst time in, uh, the, worst time in the day to go for the grocery shop is... Uh, when you're really hungry. Anyone else experience this? Because you end up coming home with like so many more things than you have ever expected and heaps of stuff that you don't need that ends up rotting in the fridge. You know? Like, uh, it's because you go and you're kind of driven by your hunger and your neediness. It's a little bit like that, I think, with you know, how we relate to the world around us. If you're spiritually hungry, the world around you becomes a place of it's either a place of threat or a place to get stuff for yourself, to feel that hunger. But friends, in Jesus, in Jesus, we have been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every. In Jesus, you are filled with his abundant grace that never ends. So you don't need to be scared about missing out. You don't need to kind of frantically grasp at things or people to make you feel okay. You you are secure in him, full with his grace, which can then overflow to the world around you. That's what was happening in this first church. Um, See, there's no hint that they were told to be generous. 
Um, there's no, there's, we're not, we're not, it doesn't say that. They just were. It overflowed out of them because God had been so generous to them. They were one in hearts. <clears throat> they were one in hearts. That expressed itself in practical, radical generosity. Uh, but they were also, you notice, they were also one in mind. One in mind. And this is really important. So they didn't say, look, just let's all just get together, believe what you want to believe, it doesn't really matter, let's just love each other. No. Their unity of heart, this miraculous generosity, it was a unity that was anchored in truth, in the, tr- the truth of the gospel. Otherwise, it would, have been, it would have just been another social club. It would have been powerless to bring about this kind of grace-driven change. So back in chapter 2, we saw this first church was devoted. Remember this? They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. And you see that continue in, in chapter 4 here. You see that continuing. Verse 33, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Right at the heart of this new community is this testimony, this teaching of the apostles, their powerful witness to the risen Lord Jesus. This historic truth of the gospel taught by the apostles. It's essential to everything that's happening here in Acts. It's essential actually to everything that's happening in our church. It's what they were united in. It's what we are united in. You take away that, the apostles' teaching, you take away the truth of the gospel, and you can expect the unity to go away as well. And these believers... You know, they yearned for the apostles' teaching. They longed to learn more. They had humility. They, they wanted to learn more and more. They didn't think that just because they thought something it was automatically right. They wanted to, they wanted to learn more about Jesus and he had, all he had accomplished through his apostles and their word to them. They were united in mind. And just as an aside... Um, I just want to kind of um, throw in, yeah, just a little aside, not about this passage, but this is why, as a church, we run what we call Belong. It's a session mainly for new people at church, but really helpful for anyone. We, we run it because we want to maintain our unity of heart and mind as a church. So can I urge you, if you haven't been to Belong, or if you're kind of newish, or even if you've been around a, a while, it's really important to do. So next time Steve um, runs it, uh, it's, it's one of the key ways that we f- seek to foster this unity of heart and mind among us. Um, but it's a really beautiful picture here, isn't it, in this part of Acts? A stunning picture, the transforming grace of God. And you get right at the end of the chapter, you get this guy called Barnabas, um, who is like a prime example of everything that's, uh, that's happened. He becomes a significant leader later on. But here, we just read, he sells his fields, amazing generosity. He sells it and brings the money to the apostles' feet. Barnabas was his nickname, by the way. It means son of encouragement. What a lovely nickname to have, son of encouragement. The apostles had obviously noticed that about him, that he was an encourager. Makes you wonder, though, what would your nickname be? Um, 
I was trying to think of the very first nickname I ever had. Uh, the first nickname I can ever have been called was by a neighbour calling me Punky Brewster. Um, back in the 80s, there was a cartoon, anyone remember? Anyway, it wasn't particularly flattering, especially since Punky Brewster was a girl. Um, and the only connection with Punky is that Punky rhymes with donkey, so you, know, you can see how it comes around. I don't think, though, it said anything very profound. I hope, um, I don't think it's, he was making a comment about my character. Um, but it's interesting to think, isn't it? If those who spent time with you observed your character, what you said and did, were to give you a nickname that kind of summed up what they saw, what would it be? What would you like it to be? What could it be? if God's grace was powerfully at work in your life. Uh, For this guy, Joseph, that was his real name, this Levite from Cyprus, God's grace flowed out of him in generosity, not just with his possessions, but with his words. Um, He was an encourager. He was the son of encouragement. So, um, it's a beautiful picture, isn't it? This It's like an ideal community. This is the church everyone wants to belong to. Which makes what comes next even more shocking. Um, Actually, I think it actually makes sense of what comes next. Because this church is so precious, God is deeply jealous for it. And he shows us here, and as we keep reading, just how seriously he takes this new community God's grace is transforming, but it's also a holy grace. It's a holy grace. Uh, so maybe you haven't read this before. We had it read before, uh, had it read out to us. But it's, it's one of them. I think, the most confronting stories in the whole Bible. Straight after we get Barnabas highlighted, we get this grim account in, five, in chapter 5, starting at verse 1, from Ananias and Sapphira. So they, they do the same thing as Barnabas, right? They sell property, they give the money to the apostles, and you think, what's the big deal? Um, sure, okay, they kept a bit back for themselves, but does it really matter? Is this a bit over the top? Well, it actually didn't matter that they kept some back for themselves. There was, there was no obligation. This is grace, right? There was no obligation for them to give anything, actually, um, There was no obligation for them to do any of this. Look down at verse 4. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? The problem wasn't that they didn't give all the money, that they kept some back. The problem was much deeper. It was their hypocrisy. Their lies. Their lies. They didn't have to give any of the money. And they could have just, they they could have said, look, um, we've sold our property, we're going to give half to you, to, the, to your apostles to um, do with what you want. Nothing more, that would have been great, right? Nothing more said about it, totally fine. You see what the problem is, is actually in their hearts? They wanted the kudos of being seen as extraordinarily generous without the full sacrifice that that might involve. <laughs> And can you see how this is kind of the reverse of the grace mentality before? They're, they're acting out of some... They're not full of grace. They're acting out of their kind of need for affirmation or something like that. Maybe they even saw Barnabas and, and said, 
well, we want our own nicknames, right? So how are we going to get them? And all of a sudden, this rotting thing is planted in the heart of this beautiful community. And that if it's left to grow, would, would, the rot would spread. So they lied about it. That was the issue. And not just to the apostles. Look at verse 3. Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received from the land? Or down in verse 4, you have not lied just to human beings but to God. Uh, So we read it. Ananias then falls down dead. It's not an accident. He didn't just by coincidence have a heart attack at that very moment, right? So uh, we're meant to see that this is a judgment of God on him. And his wife, Sapphira, goes the same way. She's given a chance to come clean. She doesn't. She keeps up the hypocrisy, the charade, and she falls down dead too. Wow, what do we make of that? (laughs) What do we make of this? It's interesting that the first believers, their reaction to this wasn't indignation. How could you do such a thing, oh God? What was their first reaction? Fear. Their first reaction was great fear. Um, This would have been ringing some bells for them. Would have been ringing some bells. There are a handful of times in the Old Testament something like this happens. It's not a common thing, but there are a handful of times. So in 2 Samuel, there's a guy called Uzziah. Maybe you know the story. He casually touches the Ark of the Covenant, um, and he's struck down instantly. Uh, in Numbers, there's a guy called Korah who leads a rebellion against Moses and brings an unworthy offerings into the tabernacle, and he's swallowed up by the ground. Uh, in Leviticus, there's two sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, Uh, They offer unauthorized fire before the Lord in the tabernacle, contrary to his command, and they're struck down as well. There's a kind of common thread through these. There would have been well-known sort of instances in the Old Testament. There's a common thread of a proud heart towards God and towards his dwelling place, towards uh, a casualness about where God chose to set his name and his presence. Well, let's come back to Acts Remember what's going on here. Uh, Luke has been making the point, the author of this book, he's been making the point that God's temple presence is now no longer a building, but Jesus and the people who are united to him. He fulfills everything that that physical temple pointed towards. Remember last, uh, a couple of weeks ago we saw, he, or maybe it was last week, he is the cornerstone. He is the cornerstone around which this temple is being built, and now the holy fire of God's presence dwells not in the holy of holies in the tabernacle or in the temple, but among these people by his Spirit. And I think there's lots we could say about this story, this account in Acts, but basically what this episode teaches us is that being God's temple is a serious, holy thing. How you treat God's temple is a serious thing. So Ananias and Sapphira had made a mockery of God's grace. They'd made a mockery of God by making a mockery of this new community. 
They saw this as an opportunity to promote themselves. They were not filled with the Holy Spirit, not filled up with God's grace. See what was said earlier? Satan had filled their hearts. Um, we've heard a bit about signs and wonders in Acts, and it happens in the next little section as well. And I actually think what's happening here is actually just another one of those signs and wonders that the apostles performed. A sign given by God right at the start of the church's life. I don't think this is a pattern we should expect to continue. Um, uh, don't think we need to be concerned necessarily. I mean, God, can, God is sovereign and he can act as he, as he wills, but we shouldn't be expecting this to be an, an ongoing pattern. It's a sign given right at the start of the church's life to teach them and all Jesus' people who followed after them, including you and me, to teach us about the holiness of this new community, about the holiness of his grace. The church isn't just another club to casually belong to, to dip in and out of. It is the living temple of the living Lord Jesus Christ, it is a holy and precious thing that God is jealous for. And when we bring sin, hypocrisy, selfishness, gossip, pride into this community of God's grace, God hates it. And so should we. We should grieve it. Well, how are you going after kind of these two accounts? Um, it seems to me that we can, we can feel like these two accounts are pretty jarring, right? Like they can just feel quite disconnected or jarring or something. On the one hand, beautiful, transforming grace. On the other, sudden judgment and great fear. Well, friends, I want to suggest to you that there is actually there's no conflict here at all. That these two things go together and you actually can't really have one without the other. Uh, you see that as you keep reading. The apostles keep performing these signs and wonders and you get this sense that now there's, uh, having sort of gone through the first, the, that Ananias and Sapphira chapter, having gone through that, you get the sense that there's this kind of new sense, a, a renewed, a, an awakened sense of awe among this community of reverence and holiness. Verse 11, great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. So you can, you, people are, are realising how awesome this God is and how holy this community is. And you kind of think that going through that experience, having these, this, this experience happen in the church, you kind of would think that would turn people off. Right? Like that it would dampen things down a little bit. Do you see it? That, that's not at all what happens. Verse 14. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. So this fear that arose within this community, it wasn't a negative thing. It wasn't Sometimes we can think of fear as an anxious uncertainty about someone. We're kind of fearful. We don't know what they're kind of a, a, a loose cannon. We don't know. That's not God. That's not the fear of God. This is awe at his glory. 
his majesty, overwhelmed by how awesome he is. And this fear gripping this community did not stop this transforming grace. If anything, it spurred it on. I think it works something like this. I've shown this a while ago, um, something like this. Um, I think this is a helpful just way to picture what's going on. When you become a Christian, God reveals something to you of, of his holiness um, and of your sin. That's why you need Jesus. That's why you need the cross. But if you, your view of his holiness stays small, um, and if your view of your own sin kind of stays small as well, then his grace is never going to have the kind of transforming impact that it had on this early church. It just won't have that impact. You'll have a small view of God's grace. But the more you see the majesty of God's holiness and the more you see the reality and depth of your sin, the more you see that the wages of sin is death, that the real wonder is not why God struck down Ananias and Sapphira, but why he hasn't struck down all the hypocrites after them, including you and me. That's the real wonder. When you see that, that's when grace becomes amazing. <laughs> amazing grace. Grace that works powerfully within you, within us. So what might that look like here? What might that look like for our church family? There's lots of things. In a way, this is an endless... I mean, God's grace is endless and it'll overflow in endless ways as we live together. But I, may, I want to suggest a couple of things coming out of this passage. I mean, tied to this passage, it would certainly mean, wouldn't there, that there ought to be no needy person among us. There ought to be no needy person among us. And there are physical needs in our church um, sometimes we can't meet them because we just don't know about them so uh, do you want to sort of just pause here and say if you are in financial distress please talk to someone about it please you have a church family of god's grace um, to support you and there are actually there are just wonderful stories that i i get the privilege of hearing um, this happening in all kinds of ways, in unstructured ways, not through the leadership of our church, but just organically because people live, do life together and love one another. This does happen, and wonderfully. So let's keep it going. But I want to suggest, though, I think in our society there's probably a more widespread need than financial need. That is a need for, for some. Uh, but I reckon from my conversations... I think a common thing that comes through is not financial poverty, but relational poverty. Um, and friends, I think this is where our church can really shine, actually, in our community. We live in a lonely world. We live in a lonely world. I was looking at some of the um, recent research this week about this. Uh, people, like, people reporting loneliness just keeps going up and up and up. <laughs> Um, and loneliness is linked to all kinds of other negative outcomes. And um, It's interesting, loneliness rates, especially among younger people, took a sharp upward turn around 2012, 2013. Any guesses why? 
Yeah. Um, social media, smartphones. We are more connected than ever and more lonely than ever. We yearn for real embodied relationships. So this is an area of great need. And I just I want to suggest that one way that we will see God's grace powerfully at work in us is wouldn't it be wonderful if we were a church in which there was no lonely people among us? That means all of us seeking to do something about that in the overflow of God's grace to you. All of us, even if you're someone, one of the people who do feel lonely, remember that you are f- fully in Christ. Keep coming back to the gospel. Keep coming back to that grace of God. You, you have, you're full in Christ. He has poured out his blessing on you. So out of that fullness, why not ask someone to lunch today? Yeah, that would be a very practical, straight off the bat, application coming out of this. Why not open your house uh, to your brothers and sisters in Christ? Uh, it's actually very rare, it seems to me, for um, increasingly rare in our society for people to have anyone other than family or very close friends in their homes. Wouldn't it be great for us to ch- turn that around? Um, to have our homes filled with one another You've got to do it in a sustainable way. I understand that. But do you, do you get what I'm, what I'm getting at? Open your house. Uh, commit to your home group and your church every week, uh, knowing that this gathering is jealously loved by God and is a holy and precious thing. This, is, this picture is about a church of believers in the risen Lord Jesus, gripped by the amazing, holy transforming grace of God. So let me finish with that opening verse again. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. Let's pray. Our God, we pray, we ask that this might more and more be true in our own lives. Please, Convict us where we need to be. Our God, keep us from having a a hypocritical heart. Um, We pray that you might help us, please, to more and more pursue holiness in our life together. And as we soak ourselves in your amazing grace to us, Please help us to see ways in which we can put that into practice. Help us to notice those gaps, those needs in our own church family and give us courage, give us willingness, give us joy to step in and meet them where we can. Uh, And we pray that this will be a great signal to our community of the transforming grace of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.